Hi, this is Tom Zoller no, from Love and no, Caves. You're not. And you're listening to. You're no Tom This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 68th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Showcase 94, number 11, from DC Comics, cover dated November 1994. But first, a little feedback. Last episode, we talked about Shag's comments on the new universe. In a follow-up exchange... He asked if after 65 issues, any of the issues actually fell short of being a 25-cent value. And I don't know if any really came up short, but I will say the ones that were closest to not making it was that issue of Stormwatch Team Achilles. That one was pretty non-good. With El Diablo a close second, the issue of Nick Fury's Howling Commandos was pretty shaky too. And the more I think about Tail Gunner Joe from a few issues back, the lower it falls on the list. The closer it is to maybe not meeting that threshold. Specifically, on episode 66, Tail Gunner Joe, Count Drunkula Ryan Daly himself, commented on a comment that I made in that episode. A choice of words, a particular expression he found interesting. This may be the most helpful podcast I've heard so far in 2016. I can't tell you how I've struggled to find a descriptor for people with two X chromosomes. A new woman and a new female. But until I heard this episode of The Quarter Bin, I never would have considered person of ladiness. Bravo. As I told Ryan, first and foremost, I'm an educator. It's... It's what I do. By the way, Emily and I recently appeared on an episode of Ryan's excellent Secret Origins podcast, episode 27, to talk about the great father and daughter magic team of Zatara and Zatanna. Check it out. That Tail Gunner Joe episode, or the Facebook post for it, was shared by Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics and the Sutherlands via their Trekker Talk page. Back to the new universe, our old buddy Noel Thingval wrote in, said it was another great episode, Professor. Thank you, Noel. The new universe is something I have yet to dig into, but the element that most interests me in doing so is how several of the creators involved went on to be key spearheads in both Valiant and Ultraverse. Even if the titles don't entirely hold up, I'm intrigued to see how it works as an early draft of what would further be honed in those newer new universes. That's a pretty interesting way to look at the new you, I think. Sort of a research project, more than an attempt to find top-notch entertaining reads. Thanks for that insight, Noel. On that issue of Justice, great listener Bradley Null commented that since there was a retcon halfway through the title that maybe the new you should count as a double-dead universe. The retcon killed the original universe, and then the cancellation killed the retcon version. 
I like that out-of-the-box thinking, Bradley. I really do. On the book itself, he said, I actually remember that as being the last decent issue of the book. That said, I like fantasy, and I'm not a fan of Punisher type, so it may have been okay for what it was trying, but just was not my thing after this issue. You know, that is one of the fundamental problems with the retcon process. If you liked the story or character or title before the retcon, there's a good chance you won't like it after the fact. Bradley also said that he intended to write in on the X-Files issues from last episode, but was unsure about the security of my communications. He just sent a picture of a masking-taped letter X that he had placed over his computer monitor. I think we all know what that means. Zeb Oswald did have the courage, and perhaps the email cryptography, to write in on that episode. Cool podcast as always. I was never an X-Files fan. I thought the woman playing Scully was hot. Scully was the gal, right? Yes, Zeb. She was. But I do have it on good authority by the woman to whom I'm related by marriage that Mulder is pretty hot too. But... Other than the vampire episode, Zeb didn't watch the show. Saw the first movie, wasn't a fan. Still, everyone has different tastes, and that's cool. That is cool, Zeb. On that, we agree. And the Sutherlands, Darren in particular, had a similar shocking confession to make regarding the X-Files. The X-Files is an odd one for me. Most people seem to love it or hate it, but I'm one of the rare people in the middle, I guess. It's, It's fine. Most episodes I've watched, I've enjoyed, but I've never found the show compelling enough to follow week after week. Personally, I always liked this standalone Monster of the Week stories more than the larger story arcs. To me, this show just seemed more pure in those episodes. And to some extent, I'm with Darren on this point. I think that some elements of the myth arcs really had the feeling of being made up on the spot without direction, without specific answers or endpoints that we were heading towards. And so I think in terms of a rewatch, and it is those standalone episodes that stand out as the must-watches. He continues that he appreciates that Chris Carter, creator of The X-Files, was a fan of The Night Stalker. That is an all-time favorite of mine. And I appreciate the nods he gives to the series. Maybe that's the reason I like the standalone monster episodes best because they feel a bit like The Night Stalker. That was a fun show for me, too, as well. It was just scary and creepy enough to be memorable without, I don't think, doing too much damage to my frail psyche. Back to Darren. I enjoyed your discussions and speculations on the likenesses in comics. I've always found that to be an interesting subject, and it's fun to speculate when the likenesses are off for legal reasons versus when the likenesses are off due to the artist. Have a great day. You and Ruth have a great day too, buddy. Thanks to you guys and everybody for the feedback, and to everyone else, thanks for listening. And on to our issue for this episode. Showcase 94, number 11, was a 48-pager at a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired the book at a bargain basement worth the 87% discount. But first up, a little history about this title, or at least similar sounding titles. Showcase has been the title of several anthology series published by DC over the years. 
It was probably the company's flagship title during the late Golden Age and, and into the Silver Age. Many heroes had their origins in the title, including Flash, Green Lantern, My Man Adam Strange, and the Metal Men. Showcase number four, the debut of the Barry Allen Flash, is widely regarded as the first Silver Age comic, and is, is definitely a comic book milestone. The original series ran from March-April 1956 to September 1970, ending with issue 93. It was revived for 11 issues from August 77 to September 78. And that was the run that introduced me to the Doom Patrol and also gave me some more Adam Strange adventures. DC revived the Showcase title in 1993 with Showcase 93, a monthly 12-issue limited series, replaced the following year by Showcase 94, etc. Showcase 96, number 12, was the last regular issue of, of that run. And although these were largely anthology books with largely standalone stories, as we'll see today, largely one-offs, but not totally, they did also manage to cross over to the DC events occasionally, such as Night's End or Zero Hour Underworld Unleashed. For the last decade or so, DC has used the word showcase as the branding for their thick black-and-white reprints of older materials, as Showcase presents. So this 90s revival of the title, Showcase 93 through Showcase 96, may be the last DC Comics to carry this historically significant nomenclature. Although, with another DC reboot, restart, relaunch, rejiggering, coming on the horizon, you never know. Let's take a break here, and when we come back, it'll be Man Bat time. Sawete. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. And we're back, looking at Showcase 94, number 11. The cover, by Jeff Darrow, is a pretty great picture of Man Bat. 
standing atop some ancient ruins, maybe Aztec, maybe Mayan. He appears to be bellowing or shrieking, and of course this is being done under a full moon. The words Manbat are the largest on the cover, but above that we also see that Starfire and Black Condor also have stories in the issue. But Manbat is the lead character, so let me start by talking about my history with that character, which ties directly into my history with Batman. They are inextricably linked by the big hardcover collection from 1971 or so, Batman, from the 30s to the 70s. I talked about this book on, sadly, the final episode, episode 24 of the excellent Bailey's Batman podcast. But for this episode, the short version of that is that that Batman from the 30s to the 70s hardcover framed my understanding of the comic book version of Batman. The 66 TV series was in reruns on afternoon TV growing up, but I understood that the TV character and the comic character weren't the same. So again, my version of the comic Batman comes from this hardcover collection, and that includes who I think the important villains are. I am to this day a big fan of Batmite for no reason other than him being in two stories in Batman from the 30s to the 70s. That puts him on equal footing with Two-Face and behind only the Joker. I am also a fan of Man-Bat because he appears in that collection once, which is the same amount of times as Riddler and Clayface appear. And that's one more story than the Penguin gets and Catwoman and Scarecrow, Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, none of whom are represented. So in my 8, 10, 12-year-old brain... Man-Bat is a major adversary, a major part of Batman's comic book life, the the Bat family. Because I read the Man-Bat story in that volume, I don't know, 50 times before I was 15? So I can't shake my fandom of the character, no matter how rarely he's actually appeared in comics, and no matter how much of a C-lister he probably really is to all of you listening. But for me... When I saw the words Man-Bat prominently displayed across the cover of a book in the quarter bin, I had no choice but to grab it. They say you shouldn't judge a book by the cover, but that's exactly what I did. The lead story is an 18-pager called, well, from what I can tell, it's called Man-Bat, and was written by the terrific Chuck Dixon with art by Flint Henry. The story starts at the site of an ancient temple in Mexico. Scent finds him. A sharp stink that cuts through the riot of odors always present here. It's a familiar one. The smell of wood smoke and tobacco. But more than that, the smell of danger. The stench of death. The stink of man. The men are a group of scientists, and they are tracking him. Dr. Kirk Langstrom, a pioneer in genetics and immunology. He is a genius. Except that now he's Man-Bat. And other than the one word that the scientists utter, Francine, their language has become a mystery to him. But that word, the name of his wife, brings him flashes of a past life, of a society he could no longer be a part of, of a dark, hostile city. And so he came to rest here, in the wilds, with his brother Bats. 
The scientists, Fletcher and Simmons, have tracked him to an ancient observatory in the jungle. One of their native guides reports what was recently seen. A great figure of a man with bat wings. They thought he was the winged animal god of the old-time Mayans. On their journey, the men admit that they are here for different reasons. Fletcher believes he can restore Dr. Langstrom's humanity. But not Simmons. He is here for Francine, as if she'd have him. Once I show that her husband is just a sideshow freak, she'll be able to show how she feels about me. One of their weapons is designed just for Man-Bat, and it seems to work. The sonic amplifier, it's disorienting him. It's jamming his echolocation skills, just as we thought it would. But as Langstrom is collapsing, another sound is heard in the jungle. Like the beating of a thousand hearts. It's more like a thousand bats. And they knock over the scientists, destroying the amplifier. The agonizing shriek is gone, replaced by the cries of men. Simmons scrambles to his big gun and catches sight of Langstrom, the flying rat. The air screams past Manbat. Something buzzes just by him. Simmons runs up outside the pyramid. Higher ground, better shot. But Manbat swoops in, the sense of gun smoke and fear on this one. Simmons stumbles and falls down into the opening of the pyramid. He's shaken up and unbowed. Here's where I send your soul to hell, Langstrom. You can bark along with the rest of the damned. You're not a man, you never will be again. You don't deserve Francine's love. His throat constricts. He struggles to make a half-remembered sound. Vranzine. And then from the shadows, he lunges at Simmons. Vranzine! Simmons is dead, and the rest of the party prepare to depart. One of the natives asks Fletcher about the woman, the gringo woman who loves the man-bat. What are you going to tell her? I'll tell her that he's dead. Kirk Langstrom is dead. I'll tell her he died many years ago. In a way, that's true. And it's the only merciful thing to do. The end. So, if I can steal from my good friend Trentus Magnus, what did I think of this? I'm always hesitant to say that someone is overrated or underrated because that's based on my perceptions of other people's perceptions of that thing. In other words, there's no way of knowing how something is rated, so there's no way to judge if something is over or underrated. That being said, unless Chuck Dixon is considered to be in the top echelon of comic book writers, then he is underrated, because to me, he definitely deserves to be in the top echelon of comic book writers. And he is great at telling tough guy stories, like The Bat Family, Punisher, G.I. Joe, Conan, Moon Knight, Don't Laugh. And one of my favorites, Evangeline, who is actually a tough lady. But that's in essence what this story is. It's a manly story. There are hunters and jungles and gunfire and a monster. And I really dig it. I do have to mention, just as an aside, one thing about Chuck Dixon, that the variety of things he's written includes 40 or 50 issues of The Simpsons amidst all the tough guy comics. That part of his bibliography, it just stands out. But this story contains the elements that I really like about Dixon's work. He takes a small story, a small cast, and a main character who can't talk 
who can barely think coherently and somehow manages to include character arcs and a deeply emotional through line. The two scientists with their conflicting goals, conflicting purposes, if you will, the one who wants to rescue Langstrom and the one who wants to steal his wife, again, in 18 pages, we get fully formed one-off characters, and that's kind of rare and really impressive. One of the strengths of Man-Bat as a character is that he gives writers a chance to tell Frankenstein stories, with the irony being that he is both the creator and the monster. And Dixon takes advantages of the emotional stakes that setup allows for, and then by adding Francine, you get that additional layer of emotion, that sense of pathos that the greatest monster stories manage to pull off. And the ending of the story is really good, really satisfying. Man-Bat has caused the death of his enemy, and despite whatever level of humanity he has left, self-defense is reasonable. And maybe a little revenge was going on there too, but I think that's alright. I just love the decision that the friend makes to tell the wife that Langstrom is dead, and that he has been for a long time. I think that's a tough choice, but the right one. And it really does put a nice ending on the search for Man-Bat. If they wanted the Man-Bat storyline to have an ending, this would have served as one. Now, having said that, I don't know if the story was meant to be an ending or meant to be a backdoor pilot. I don't know if that's one of the purposes of this title, this version of Showcase, but the story works either way. It does bring an end to Man-Bat if, if they had chosen to do that. But... About a year later, this same exact creative team put out a three-issue Man-Bat Mini, and since then he showed up a couple of times per year, and that's probably right for Man-Bat, because as much as I love the character, I understand that the secret with him is small doses. We can only hope that in the newly rebooted, restarted, rejiggered, rearranged DCU, there is room, at least a little room maybe, for Kirk Langstrom as Mad Bat. All right, I'm going to take a break here, play another promo, and when we come back, we'll do even briefer recaps and reviews of the other two stories in the issue. Trekker Talk. A fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at trekkertalk.com. And we're back. Again. The second story Ten pages long, features Black Condor. It is The Tempting, Part 2, The Hard Place. The story was written by Brian Augustine, with art by Anthony Chun and Matt Banning. 
taking a quick look through Mike's Amazing World, it looks like two-parters in these annual showcase volumes were rare, though they did happen every now and then. Fortunately, this story starts with a recap, explaining that the demonic predator, known as the Peregrine, attacked Black Condor for reasons the winged hero still finds nearly unfathomable. Describing Peregrine as demonic is accurate, as his shtick is possessing and transforming human hosts. He is now possessing Condor's friend, Ned Smith. Condor wants to know why Peregrine isn't possessing him if he wants to mess with him so much, but Peregrine isn't interested in his body. We want to own your spirit. If we corrupt you, we have your soul. Condor realizes that he has to try to reach Ned psychically, which I guess he can do. And then the two enemies battle face-to-face inside Ned's mind. Condor doesn't exactly know how this is happening, and neither do I, but he knows this changes everything. And I will have my friend free. Peregrine realizes that he can be hurt on this battlefield, which is a little unusual, making himself a god and all that. But Condor kicks him and slugs him, trying to get the upper hand. Don't worry, Ned, it's nearly over. His powers are enhanced in this location. I blasted that boulder to shards with barely a thought. Do you see how this works now, demon? We want you gone. But this demonstration of power makes Condor an even more attractive target to possess. But Condor manages to knock them both back into the real world? Somehow? And finally drive the demon out. Ned is free and tells his friend that he is a real hero, a word that Condor has evidently denied in the past. But now he wonders if he's squandering his gifts when there's so much good he can do. I may as well take things more seriously, since every weirdo on the planet keeps coming at me anyway. Ned suggests a Condor signal that he can send up whenever there's trouble. Don't push it, Ned. Don't push it. The end. So, as Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think? I like that despite this being a part two, this did not require me to have read part one. So that was a a nice touch in terms of the technical aspects of the writing. As to the story itself, nothing too dramatic or unusual. We've seen fights in strange places before, even in mindscapes. So again, there's nothing exactly groundbreaking here. And the art is pretty standard as well. And even the revelation at the end that maybe he can really be a hero after all. Now that's probably a momentous moment for the character. It's played as momentous. But for someone not familiar with the character up to that point, it seemed, again, pretty standard. This character, by the way, is the second Black Condor, Ryan Kendall, who debuted just a few years before in... Black Condor number one, and lasted through Blackest Night. I am much more familiar with the original Black Condor, Thomas Wright, who debuted all the way back in 1940, and who was raised by super-intelligent condors. Yes, I I, I just said that. Super-intelligent condors. That guy is the one who I read in the Freedom Fighters during the mid-70s. Now, what they do have in common is a strong desire to show off their abs. Black Condor's super suit has some things in common with Hawkman's, if you know what I'm saying. So overall, it's a story that passed some time, 
It's a story that filled the middle of this book. But other than that, again, pretty average. The third story in the book, also ten pages, features Starfire from the New Titans. The story Shadows of the Soul was written by the legendary Titans writer Marv Wolfman. The story was penciled by Roy Burdeen and inked by Chris Ivey. We start with a full-page shot of our heroine flying right at us in her skimpy purple outfit, and front and center are her big, round, prominent green eyes. Really, that's all I noticed about her. This story takes place immediately after Titans 114 were told, for whatever that's worth. We find Cory wondering what exactly she's doing here on Earth. This planet is not hers. This city is not hers. What keeps you here? Dick Grayson? Maybe once you would have sacrificed yourself for him, but no longer. Think about where you belong. These are the thoughts that go through Starfire's mind. Again, and again, and again. Her flight is interrupted by a headache that just comes out of nowhere. She calls on the deity Azar for help, not her own goddess, Exal. She determines that the pain is calling her to a particular place, where she sees police cars and wonders why they're here. Dick said they usually didn't care about what happens in this neighborhood. It's a hostage situation, a father having taken his kids captive. The neighbors say he's been crazy since his wife died. Starfire flies into the scene, and the police don't know whether to trust her with all the damage the Titans have done lately. And she is angry when she flies in the window and sees the father with a gun. The father panics and fires at her, causing the police on the street to almost barge in their own guns blazing. Everyone on the scene is on edge. Inside the apartment, Corey blasts the gun out of the father's hands, proclaiming that she could destroy the entire building with the crook of her finger. No violence, no weapons. By Azar, I will not permit it. Again? Azar? Not Exal? She's both angry and confused at this point. The father wonders if Corey is the angel he's been praying for. His wife is dead, he's lost his job, and all he has are his children and he just can't care for them. Corey talks sense to the father, tells him that killing himself is not the answer. One of his children sees a rat and shrieks. The shriek is heard from the street, and after the gunshot a few seconds before, one of the jumpier police officers fires her weapon. The others, just following suit, I guess, do the same, and they pour bullets into the open window of the apartment and one round hits the father. At which point Starfire goes full Tamaranian. Why? How dare you attack him? He was confused and in pain. He was not going to hurt anyone. As the police scramble to get the injured man help, Starfire talks to him about not giving up on life. And she hears a voice inside her head telling her that she has a need to heal this man. Just just do it. And she does, and in doing so discovers that when she was attacked by Raven, probably in that Titans issue mentioned before, instead of a seed of evil, a seed of good. Raven's Azerathian soul was planted in her. She does bring healing to the man, which brings a measure of healing to the family. And after scolding the trigger-happy police officer, Corey flies off. Off of Earth completely, as a matter of fact. Tamaran. I must go home to Tamran. And so she does. 
and we're told that Starfire's journey continues in Dark Stars 26. So as my old buddy Trennis Magnus might say, what did I think? Actually, there are some similarities between this one and the Black Condor story. Similarities beyond the minimal amount of fabric in the hero's costumes. There was some doubt, some uncertainty. There was becoming a hero, or maybe in this case, becoming a different kind of hero at least. But I think the main difference is that Marv Wolfman is a master storyteller. Brian Augustine is a journeyman professional, sure. But being wedged into an issue between Chuck Dixon and Marv Wolfman, journeyman professional, doesn't really cut it. Here we get a terrific character piece, while also telling a great little story full of drama, again full of one-off characters who we really get to know. Just a well-crafted ten-page comic book story. And yes, there was continuity that had to be addressed, both before the story and after the story, but none of that got in the way. It was really well-integrated. You pick up an anthology book, and you just never know what you're going to get, especially in the last story of the book. But this was good, really good. The art was wonky at parts. Those police officers didn't look so great, and the father was a bit odd-looking too. But for me, art wonkiness is a minor distraction. The story was solid, very solid. And a story from two decades ago about, let's just say less than fully competent police officers? That part of the story, unfortunately, has some resonance to this day. The verdict on Showcase 94, number 11. The lead features a man-bass story written by Chuck Dixon. That alone makes it worth way more than two bits. And though the Black Condor story was a bit forgettable, the Starfire story was really good. This book is a fantastic quarter-bin deal. And that wraps up my coverage of Showcase 94, number 11, bringing episode 68 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 69, we're back to our number 9 series, back to Doom 2099, and next time it'll be issues 5, 6, and 7 of that series, all from Marvel Comics, cover dated May, June, and July 1993. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Sir! Uh-huh.